Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are so much higher than our own, aren't they? Well, often when a preacher comes up here, as you know, we like to tell a story or an anecdote or give some illustration to uh, get you to buy into the sermon and to, you know, serve as a starting point for you who are listening and to help you connect with what we're about to teach. Well, I don't have um, a story this morning. Instead, I want to tell you exactly what we're going to talk about. We just read uh, Romans chapter 11, but I'm going to be preaching from Romans chapter 9. And Romans 9 uh, is one of those texts that's incredibly difficult. I think it might be the most difficult passage in the entire book of Romans. And for such a rich book, that's saying something. But it's not necessarily difficult in the way that you think. See, the message of Romans 9 actually isn't usually that difficult to understand, but it can be difficult to accept. I've been studying this text for a few weeks in preparation for this message, and if I'm honest, I still have a hard time with what we're going to see. I believe it, it's true, it's right, and it's still a challenge. So if questions come out of the message and out of the text this morning, good. You should be asking questions of Scripture, especially when we come to difficult spots. So when that happens today, write those questions down. Write them down and then take them to your life group this week and discuss them. Or uh, get coffee with a pastor. Any of the pastors on staff would love to talk to you about this text and uh, the book of Romans, and I can't promise you that we're going to have solid answers for you. Uh, It's a tricky one, uh, but we'd be glad to get coffee and process with you. So that said, uh, before we get to Romans 9, let me tell you the main thing I want you to take away. It's this. It's that God is holy. He's way holier than we realize. That God is sovereign, He's sovereign over everything. He's in control, and he has a plan, and he has purposes for what he does that we cannot begin to fathom. He is just. He's more fair than our best attempts at justice. And he is merciful. Merciful beyond our wildest imagination. And while the text this morning is a challenge, when we leave, I want you to understand that it's precisely because of who God is, of these things and how he has acted throughout history that we can honestly sing those words that we just did, that it is well with my soul. Whether peace like a river or sorrows like sea billows or Satan or trials or whatever our lot is, we can say because of God's holiness and sovereignty and justice and mercy that it is well with my soul. So how do we get from here to there? Well, first, we're going to pray, and then we're going to open up Romans 9 together and see what it has. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that we can come to you uh, in whatever state we're in. We confess that we come uh, in mixed states, some uh, happy and full of joy this morning, and some confused and sorrowful and some feeling uh, life's difficulties. Um, Lord, would you uh, meet each person in this room where they are uh, by the power of your spirit and encourage them and teach them and, uh, and, and be with them. 
Uh, God, and as we open up your word, we praise you for it. We praise you that you have given us difficult texts and called us to wrestle with them and to chew on them and to think deep thoughts about who you are. And so we ask this morning that that would happen in this room, that by your spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth that's in your word. Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this chance to gather. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 29. And if you're not normally the type that opens up their Bible, uh, can you please make an exception just for me this week? I'd love that. Uh, if, the, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in uh, the chairs in front of you, or you can open up the text on your phone. I'm preaching uh, from the NIV, um, but whatever translation you want to use is just fine. While you open up there, since I know all of you are now, uh, one more note as we go into Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 absolutely must be understood in the whole context of Romans, first off. So last week you heard Pastor Dan talk about the end of Romans chapter 8 and salvation and this idea uh, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So that's our immediate context. But then these three chapters all need to be understood in the context of one another. They form a triad, uh, three chapters talking about uh, sort of divine sovereignty and God's divine choice in salvation along with human effort. And you have to read them together. And so I'm going to encourage you, challenge you, tell you that you need to later today. If you're watching the Packers, you can do it after that. Uh, Go home, open up your Bibles, and read Romans 9, 10, and 11 all in one sitting. It's just three chapters. Uh, It's not going to take you too long. But if you don't, here's what's going to happen. You're going to come to chapter 9, and hear this message, and you're going to think that salvation is only all about God's sovereign choice, and what people do doesn't matter. And that would be wrong. And then you could just read chapter 10 by itself, and you would think, well, this has a whole lot to do with human effort and what people do, and really not that much with God's calling, and that would also be wrong. And then you'll come to chapter 11, and you'll see Paul weave those things together in sovereign choice and human effort, and uh, develops this tension, and uh, that's a little bit more what it's like. But even then, Paul concludes with that great hymn that Jeff read for us, right? It's the only thing we can conclude when we look at these three chapters, that God is full of knowledge and wisdom, and he is unsearchable, and and he deserves glory forever. So go home, not during the sermon, but go home and read all three chapters and see what you think. That said, Romans chapter 9. As we go through, uh, we're going to talk about three main sections that are framed around uh, three important questions that we're going to ask and answer. So first, would you look with me at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. I, that is Paul, speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. What's going on here is that Paul is wrestling with the reality that he's looking around and ethnic Jews all around him are not following Jesus. And it's breaking his heart. 
His soul is crushed because he has the truth and he's communicating the truth about who Jesus is and he's struggling with the reality that his ethnic brothers and sisters aren't following Jesus and they absolutely should be. He goes so far as to say that he wishes that he was cursed and cut off from Christ so that his people would believe. Say what you want about Paul and how difficult he can be to understand at times, and that's true, but this guy really agonized over people's souls. And so he's devastated, but why? Well, because as he looks around his first century context, he sees what we still see today, right? He sees all sorts of people, our family, our friends, our loved ones, and in this case, his Jewish brothers and sisters rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite of having been given all kinds of advantages to knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, right? The nation of Israel, Paul's brothers and sisters were chosen and adopted by God, it says, It says theirs is the divine glory. They're God's representatives and they're empowered by him. They're the recipients of God's promises and his covenant of of land and offspring in this special blessing relationship. They worshiped in the temple. They had uh, Abraham and David and the other patriarchs or fathers of the faith. They had the law, right? And the Messiah, Jesus, is traced through their lineage and still they don't believe. And it breaks Paul's heart. But it also drives him to preemptively ask and answer our first question this morning. Did God's word fail? Look at verse 6 with me. Paul says, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So God made these promises throughout the Old Testament to save Israel and to use them and to have this special relationship with them. And everywhere Paul looks, it's not working, right? It's not working. There are all kinds of Jews who aren't saved. And so the question, God, did, did your word fail? What happened? Did those promises and those covenants and all those sorts of things, did they not work? No, Paul says. No, but all of Israel is not all Israel. There's this idea out there that is still around today that many of us have thought, right? That those who are born into the nation of Israel, their offspring of Abraham, right? They're necessarily saved by God because of this special relationship, right? It's like their birthright. But that's just not the case, right? Because from the beginning, there were those who were ethnically Jewish, but who were not part of God's chosen nation of Israel, And there were those who were ethnically other, they were outsiders, and they were grafted in to the nation of Israel. In other words, from the very beginning, God, according to his good and perfect purposes and plan, chooses some, but not all. And he often chooses those we would never expect. So, we see that all of ethnic Israel is not all of true Israel. For a better understanding, let's look back at verses 6 all the way through 13. He writes, he says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. 
Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins, so the twins, that's how they're conceived at the same time, were born, before they were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, Abraham, if you don't remember, is uh, the father of the nation of Israel, right? He's the one to whom God appeared and said, I will bless you and make you a blessing and your offspring will be like the stars in the sky and you're going to have all this land and I'm going to have this special relationship with you and with your offspring who will be the nation of Israel. Now, we just saw that it seems like that promise fell flat, right? Based on Paul's experience and even ours today. But no, Paul says, it's just that not all of Abraham's descendants are his children, right? Everyone born of Abraham's lineage is not called true Israel. Well, how do we know? Well, recall with me the story of Abraham. God came to Abraham and made these promises, and eventually, uh, when he and Sarah were very old, God showed up and said, look, Abraham, I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to give you a son with your wife, Sarah. And Sarah laughs because she's so old, and uh, she knows she's not going to be able to have a baby. And Abraham trusts God to his credit. He believes that that's going to happen. Uh, but then 20 years goes by before, Abra before God makes good on his promise to Abraham. And so in the meantime, Abraham's like, what's going on here? Uh, maybe God meant something else, and I need to take matters into my own hands. And so he forces his uh, slave girl, Hagar, to have his child, right? And he, and he takes uh, matters into his own hands, and he tries to make good on God's promise in his own way. The problem, then, is that God promised it would be through his wife, Sarah, that these children would come. And so, from the outset, right, not all of Abraham's descendants were true Israel. Ishmael and his whole line were outsiders. The promise of the Messiah came through Sarah. Then, Paul says, what about the twins, Jacob and Esau? Well, if you don't know, these two were quite the pair. They were fighting uh, with each other, even in the womb. And Esau was born first, and Isaac was born second. And so, like any good Jewish family would, uh, Esau was to be the heir that carried on the family legacy and the family name, and you'd expect everything to flow through him. Right? Firstborns had all the rights, but, but before these two were even born, the Lord told Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. It's a total flip of what's expected. And as their lives play out, it gets even more surprising that God chose Jacob and not Esau. Because Esau is like this big, burly hunter-gatherer type, right? He's, he's hairy, and he's out in the fields, and he's out killing animals, and, and he's a man's man. He's everything you'd expect uh, if, if you're looking for a warrior leader, right? He's dependable and strong, and certainly he can lead Israel. And there's Jacob. And Jacob is a mama's boy. He spends long hours inside with his mom and, and he's cooking and, and you can imagine him sitting down at the table and writing poetry all the time. And, and there's nothing wrong with men doing those things. I like to cook and I assume many of the guys in here do. It's just not exactly what you would expect if you were looking for a Messiah who would lead you in military and political 
victory. So all signs pointed to Esau, the older one, as the one through whom God would continue his promise of the Messiah. Except in verse 11, we're reminded that before the twins were born, apart from them doing anything good or bad, so apart from God seeing them and seeing what they did or looking forward and seeing what they would do, apart from any human reason, but solely so that God's purpose in election in calling or in his sovereign plan. For all those reasons, God chose Jacob. And then, as they grow in a, in a moment of treachery and trickery, Jacob fools his older brother Esau out of his birthright. And later, he, as his father is dying, he straps animal skins on his arm so that his blind father would feel his arm and think he was passing the birthright on to the older son Esau. And he, Jacob totally deceives his dad into passing the birthright onto him. It's not, it's not great, and it's not intuitive. And then it gets even trickier because verse 13 quotes Malachi, and, and the text that's quoted there is this. Malachi chapter 1, starting with verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, Edom, that's the descendants of Esau, may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So what's that about? It's a little uncomfortable, right? God says, saying, I chose Jacob, who was kind of this slimy guy and not Esau, and I'm going to continually destroy Edom, even though they try to rebuild. Well, it's a truth that's easy to understand and difficult to come to terms with. In his good and sovereign plan, God chooses some for blessing and salvation and others for destruction. In his good and sovereign plan, God chooses some for blessing and salvation and others for destruction. We're going to see the same thing with Pharaoh in just a minute. Now, before we do that, what happens when we're faced with these realities? This is a really uncomfortable thing, right? That God would choose some and not others. I think there are at least two dangers for us right now as we think about these uncomfortable truths. We could say this. We could say, I could never believe in a God who's like this, who doesn't save everyone. I'm out. Forget about it, right? God doesn't save everyone. I'm done with this. I can't believe in a God who does this. To you, I would say, be careful. Be careful, because this is who the God of the Bible has revealed himself to be. And in spite of what you or I think, we are finite, and God is eternal. And he knows better than we do. He knows better than we do. And, the, and that's danger number two, that we start to think that I'm better than God. I know better than God, I'm kinder than God, I'm more loving than God, I could come up with a better plan than God could come up with, I care more about people than God does. Well, I assure you, none of that is true. 
We are not better than God. We are not more loving than God. We are not kinder than God. And we could not come up with a better plan than he does. If, if he says that this is the plan that's best for humanity and that brings him most glory, that's the important thing that God is glorified, right? If this is the plan in which God receives the most glory, he knows better than we do that that's correct. And so do we fully understand how this plan brings the most glory to him? Well, we can kind of get it, right? Because we understand that as God pours out his wrath and, and brings justice on wickedness, he's glorified in doing that. And then as he shows mercy, we see, we see his glory there. But it's, it's not hard for us to conclude th that we think that God really should just save everyone. Right? God should just save everyone, forgive everyone, what, because, because that would bring him the most glory, right? If Jesus died and, and everyone came to salvation, God would receive the most glory in that, right? But that plan, no matter what we think or say or argue, is not better than God's plan. It's just not. And yet, the question that Paul anticipates here is really real and raw, and, and many of us are probably thinking it this morning. If God doesn't save everyone, if he chooses some and not others, right? If, if he loved Jacob, but he continually destroyed Esau and his descendants, well, why? Right? Why doesn't he save everyone, and isn't he unjust? Look with me at verses 14 to 21. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Isn't God unjust? Not at all. He is holy and sovereign and just and merciful. Look at what it says here. God is not unjust. In fact, he is merciful and compassionate. It says there in verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. That, that quote is from the book of Exodus. That God says that after he's just led the Israelites out of, captivity, out of captivity from Egypt, right? They've been enslaved by the Egyptians for a long, long time. And God leads them out and he parts the Red Sea and he's a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. And he leads them out and he provides for them and cares for them and protects them from their enemies. And then, God, and then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the law and to get a word from the Lord. And as he's up there, Israel, this nation who God has made promises to and who he's just delivered from their oppressors, take all the gold in their camp and they form it, melt it down, and make golden calves. And you know what they do to those golden calves? They worship them. 
for delivering them from Egypt. God has just shown them all these signs and all these wonders and done these amazing things, and they make these golden calves and they bow down and say, oh, golden, golden calves, you're so amazing. You have delivered us from the Egyptians. And God is angry, right? You can understand that. He's angry, and he says, that I'm done. I'm wiping them out. I'm, I'm going to wipe them all out. This is over. And Moses pleads with God, and he says, God, you said you wouldn't do that, so please don't. God, don't wipe them out. Have mercy. And this is how God responds. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, in spite of being totally deserving, of being utterly destroyed. God doesn't. He shows them mercy and compassion. But God also, he shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy, but he also hardens who he wants to harden. The case study here for this is Pharaoh. And you may remember Pharaoh, but if you don't, let me remind you. Pharaoh was the ruler of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians uh, enslaved the Israelites, who were God's chosen people, for a long, long time. And eventually it came time for Egypt to let Israel go, and God had a plan for that to happen. Well, apparently, part of that plan, according to Exodus 4, was to harden the heart of Pharaoh so that when God says, let my people go, Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart in chapter 4, and then later in the book, we read that Pharaoh also hardens his own heart. And so I think that the mechanism that God uses is he hardens hearts, in this case, uh, with Pharaoh, is just to give us over to the sin that we really want. Right? Pharaoh wanted to be worshipped as a god, and he didn't want to let the enslaved Israelites go, and so he wanted to say no, and so God said, okay, say no, and see what happens. We see this in Romans chapter 1, even today, right? It, it, in Romans 1, at the beginning of this series, we saw that uh, men and women exchanged shameful, or exchanged what was good and natural uh, for shameful lusts for one another. And it says that God gave them over to what was unnatural, to their sin. And in fact, I think, and I know, it's only by God's incomprehensible grace and mercy that we have not totally devolved into chaos, right? Just look at our culture. There's madness all around us, right? Sin is not just tolerated, but it's celebrated. And God is openly mocked on every corner. That's just a taste of what it would be if it weren't for God's merciful hand restraining the sin of believers and unbelievers alike. When we see people falling into sin after sin as Christians, we should never think, oh, thank goodness I'm not like that. Thank goodness I'm not like that person. I, I would never. They're awful. Instead, instead, we remind ourselves, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, there go I. If it were not for God's grace in my life, both common grace that's available just because God exists, and especially the grace of the Holy Spirit living within me, I can guarantee you that I would absolutely nosedive my life. And so would you. So would you. And apparently, in some cases, God allows that to happen. Why? Well, According to verse 14, 
He did that to Pharaoh so that God might display his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. As the story of Pharaoh goes on, you might remember that God sends ten plagues and he makes it completely impossible for the Egyptians and all those surrounding nations who hear of these crazy things happening to not notice and know that God is powerful and glorious, right? There are flies everywhere and there are frogs and, and the Nile, that huge Nile River turns all to blood and eventually all the firstborns die. Well, why? Why did God do that? Well, he told us so that he might display his power and so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Church, listen, listen. God is holy, He is so much holier than you think. So much holier than you think. And he is sovereign. He's sovereign beyond your wildest imagination. And he can do whatever he wants. No matter if that makes us uncomfortable or not, God can do whatever he wants. And yeah, we can question it. We can say why. And we do. right? But here's the thing. In verses 19 to 21, we see he is God and we are not. He can do whatever he wants and we cannot, right? Anything that he has or ever will desire is absolutely his right to do. And we, the clay, are formed by him. That's what it means that he's God and we're not. And so he has the right to do with his clay whatever he pleases. He is creator. We struggle with this so much in American culture, right? Because nobody gets to tell us what to do. We fight against any kind of authority that's over us, right? We value freedom, right? And personal freedom specifically over everything else, don't we? And so when we hear that God hardened Pharaoh and took away his personal freedom in order to show his glory, we think that's not fair. That's not fair. How could he? We read verse 15, and God says, I have compassion and mercy on whom I choose and not on everyone. And we're like, but, but that's not right. Why, why doesn't God save everyone? Isn't he unjust? And the answer, we saw, is not at all. God is not unjust. What's happening is we're asking the wrong question. The question we should be asking is not, why doesn't he save everyone? The question is, why does he save anyone? Why does God save anyone? There's a story of a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who you've probably heard of, and he he once preached this text and uh, talked about how it says that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and a, a congregant, a woman, went up to him, and she had questions, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I, I can't understand. How can it say that God hated Esau. And Charles looked at her and said, that is not my difficulty, madam. What I cannot understand is how it says that God loved Jacob. How could God love Jacob? See, the question is not why did God choose some and not others? Why didn't he choose everyone? The question is this, why does he save Anyone, that should overwhelm us with awe and mercy for God. Why did God save me? 
He didn't have to. Certainly, I don't deserve it. We're not worthy of salvation by any merit of our own. We're rebels and sinners and idolaters. And yet, in the verses we're about to read in 22 to 29, we're powerfully reminded of the mercy that God demonstrates towards us. Would you look with me at verses 22 to 29? It says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites may be like sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. What if, Paul says, that even though God does show his wrath and make his power known as he did with Pharaoh, what if he also bore with great patience so that the objects of mercy would see his glory? What's he saying here? He's saying, what if, in spite of it looking like God is unjust and unfair, we shifted our perspective and considered his patience? See, God bears with the objects of his wrath. He is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to to come to repentance. God is patient with those who are under his wrath. He's not quick to judge. He's not quick to harden. He's not quick to destroy. No, he's patient, giving opportunity after opportunity to repent and come to faith in him. And then in verses 25 to 29, we see the answer to our question. Why does God save anyone? Well, because he is merciful beyond our wildest imaginations, right? He's not just a little bit merciful. We already saw this, right? He, He restrains all of humanity in their sin so that the whole world does not devolve into utter chaos. If you look around, you see what I think is just a tiny bit of the chaos that we're capable of causing because of our sin. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And the only reason that the wheels haven't completely come off the cart is because of the mercy of God restraining us. But beyond that, beyond restraint in sin, we see these things in verses 25 to 29. He says, I will call those who are not my people, they will be called my people. Those who are not my loved ones, the outsiders, they will be called my loved ones. Those who are not my children will be my children those who are worthy of destruction, like the Israelites were at the base of Mount Sinai, a remnant will be preserved. You see what's going on here? God is not a God who just chooses some for fun and others 
to mess with us, or, and not others to mess with us and keep us guessing, right? Not at all. That's not who God is. He's merciful. Not only did God preserve this group of Israelites when they rebelled and rebelled and worshipped idols and disobeyed and on and on, not, not just with Israel, but he does the same thing with you and I, with Gentiles, those who are not his chosen people, those who the promise was not initially given to. That promise doesn't just stay with Israelites, right? God calls outsiders to be grafted into the faith throughout the Old Testament. Israel was to be a city on a hill and a light for the nations so that God's glory would be shown and so that he would be worshipped as more and more non-Israelites were brought into the faith in God. And then that continues with Jesus. And these things continue to happen. Those who are not my people will be my people, and those who were not loved will be my loved ones. God continues to expand the promise to those of us he didn't initially make the promise to. See, God is in the business of taking people who are broken and lost and unloved and used up and rebellious and calling them into relationship with himself. We get really stuck on the difficulty we have with God not saving everyone. But the fact that God saves anyone should astonish us. The fact that he saves anyone should astonish us. And so as we conclude and as a point of application, I think we have to ask the question, why? Why did God choose to save anyone? Why did God save you or I? The answer is twofold. First, it's to bring glory to his name. That's the main reason that God does anything that he does, is to bring glory and praise to his name. And he's glorified in this grand plan of salvation. He's glorified as he exercises both his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. He's glorified as he holds together this tension that is divine sovereignty and choosing and human effort in salvation. He's glorified as we turn to him and we wrestle with this truth and we say, God, I don't understand this. How can this be the better plan? And as we discuss it with each other and as we remind each other and say to God, look, I don't understand how this can be, but I trust you. And I know that your word is true. And I know that what you do is the better plan. He's glorified in this beautiful web of tensions and mercy and justice and grace and wrath. And second, God calls sinful people to repentance so that their lives will change. And they will reflect his glory and be his hands and feet and be the salt and the light. That's why he called and used the nation of Israel, right? Over and over in the Old Testament, we read that God did these things so that the nations would see his power through Israel and his glory. And, and the same thing rings true today. We're called of God that we might live in a way that those around us would see his power and glory and many would come to faith in him. You might still have questions about how this plays out and how God works out this sovereign plan in your life and in the world, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing because if we could understand God and everything that he does, then he would just be some figment of our imagination that was a created thing. God is God, and we cannot fully understand him. But we can rest in the divine mystery of who he is and how he acts and rejoice 
in the things that we do know. And we can declare with the church throughout the ages that God is holy, so much holier than we realize. That he's sovereign. He has a plan and a purpose for every detail throughout history. That he's just. He is more fair than our best attempts and that he is merciful. More merciful than we could possibly imagine. Would you pray with me?